Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And today we're talking about episode six of Midnight Mass. Holy crap. Oh my gosh. So much action. <laughs> so much action. For all of the action we didn't get in episode five. It's a yeah. dump. <laughs> yeah. Last episode was a lot of exposition. This one is a lot of scary action. Yes. Bloody, yes. scary, gory action. It's awesome it just goes to show you though in a show that it only has you know seven episodes it's only seven episodes you have to have some of those episodes that are more heavy on the exposition oh yeah, yeah to yeah. get to the great action yep a lot of character building a lot of story setting so that way we can launch kind of right into episode six so we start off with a really 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 this is probably the third or fourth time i've seen the episode and it just hit me on this watch through how traumatized Erin has to be at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's lost her baby. She's lost Riley now. Not only did she lose Riley, Riley confesses his love for her and then literally rows her out to the middle of nowhere so she can't escape and then bursts into flames. Yeah. And it's not even just like a, oh, hey, this person I really care about is leaving or dying or is somehow going to be absent from me but also here's a bunch of like really really freaky almost unbelievable stuff about what's happening to our community and if you thought you were crazy or if you thought this person was crazy based on what they're saying no now I'm going to show you it's a whole nother level of just complete trauma yeah it's it, like, he's trying to save her, but at the same time, he's hurting her so badly. Yeah. Because immediately after this, Aaron goes to see Dr. Sarah, and Dr. Sarah is able to show her in a more scientific way, like, look, when I put your blood in the sun, it explodes. Yeah, Dr. Sarah is the hero we need. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love Dr. Sarah a lot. She's just able to see, like, show her, like, see, if I put you or your mom's blood in the sunlight, it explodes. So that's bad. That's definitely not what's supposed to happen. Yeah, that's not a thing that generally happens in science. <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be less exploding, more just not doing anything. I'm not a phlebotomist by any means, but yeah. <laughs> I generally yeah. think that exploding blood is, I mean, if you've seen the thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it this way. Generally, exploding blood equals horror context. <laughs> yes, exactly. So she could have seen it that way. But then once again, she already had a miscarriage. I mean, I suppose you could call it a miscarriage, although not in the traditional sense of the word. Yeah. It's more like a resorption yeah yeah it wasn't it wasn't like a, a miscarriage in the sense that the pregnancy didn't evacuate itself mm -hmm. it just disappeared yeah like it was re resorbed but in any case like she couldn't believe that and even though another doctor told her like that's not what happened you didn't have a miscarriage that happened in her own body Yep. So maybe it did take something drastic for her to get on board with like what really is happening. Because I would say, although I don't live on an island, I don't live in an isolated community, 
I would say that I probably would still notice some of the changes that are happening in the people around me. Definitely. And I think perhaps Erin has been a little absent from that because she has been dealing with her loss. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, the Lisa thing, you Mm -hmm. know, Lisa being able to walk was the first super visible sign. But in terms of the more subtle changes happening around her, she really isolated herself and kind of only saw Riley after, you know, it was confirmed that she had lost her pregnancy. So I could see how she would be a little removed from that. Like she hadn't seen Mildred yet Mm -hmm. in her youthful state. Yeah. And how shocking. Like when when she comes to see Dr. Sarah and Dr. Sarah's like, look, the blood explodes. And then Mildred walks in and she's like, holy crap, your hair's not white. You don't have any wrinkles. Like by all accounts you're you know probably in your 50s now even though i think she's like in her 80s or 90s right yeah and like not only that she is moving like she's able to move around and i would imagine that seeing her kind of in her elderly state versus now would be really shocking but aaron's like you know what keep bringing it keep throwing them at me sure (laughs) sure So one of the, I think, more touching moments is that after Aaron returns to shore, we find out that Riley has written letters to his mom and his dad and to his brother Warren and to Father Pruitt. He didn't write a letter to Aaron, obviously. He delivered the letter in person, but he's written these letters to the people that he cares about most. But he also wrote one to Father Pruitt. So Ed Flynn takes the letters to Father Pruitt and he's like, hey, I know that you've been hanging out a lot with my son because of the meetings. I am concerned that he's not well, that he's done something to himself because these letters are crazy. Like, I don't understand what's in them. Father Pruitt is like, he's trying to tell Ed, like, yes, your son is unwell, although he already knows that Riley is dead. Right. And I I just wanted to know what you thought of that scene where Ed's like, I failed and I can't help him. It was a beautiful scene. I mean, Ed's journey as a character has been really interesting throughout this show. We've talked a lot about sort of him. And he says this, like kind of not knowing what to do in regards to Riley and trying to figure out how to square that, that like he doesn't have all the answers in terms of how to interact with, how to parent his grown son, how to navigate his son's addiction and incarceration and like the person that he is now. Ed has been kind of at a loss, but he's been trying the whole time. And I thought in addition to the scene being really touching, I thought it was very interesting having gone through the rest of the episode and seeing how Ed reacts to certain things, how the mom reacts to certain things, and then at the end how the entire family responds to the situation at the church. I thought it was really interesting that Ed was kind of saying in the context of these letters, he's like, I just feel like Riley and I are speaking a different language and we can't meet in the middle and I don't know how to understand him. And yet... When push came to shove, Ed was listening to Riley's advice, Mm -hmm. you know, like he was definitely, they never say this explicitly, but based on his reaction to what was happening in the church, he was listening to Mm -hmm. Riley and he was understanding, you know, and giving Riley the grace of, oh, 
he was right. Yeah. You know? And obviously I'm putting a lot of context there, but that was kind of my reading of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit later, the parallels between the Flynn's and the mayor and his wife. Yeah. But I do want to cut back to the reaction that Mrs. Flynn has to Aaron's revelation of Riley being dead. Yeah. So Aaron, after, I think it, I can't remember the order of operations. I think she stops by the Flynn's and then she and Dr. Sarah and Mildred meet up at the ferry. Because she's already been there to see the blood stuff. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Aaron goes to the Flynn's and she is trying to honor Riley's last wish, which is get my family off the island by any means necessary run. So... She goes there and she stops and she knocks on the door and Mrs. Flynn opens the door and she's like, I would really like for you and your husband and your son to come to the mainland with me today. And Mrs. Flynn is like, well, no, it's Easter Vigil tonight. And of course, she would never miss Easter Vigil and get stranded on the mainland, basically. Like, where would they stay? What would they do? And Aaron is just kind of insistent. And then Mrs. Flynn becomes very vulnerable with her and says, hey, Just so you know, I'm not trying to get in Riley's business, but he's been gone for days. I don't know what's happening. I haven't seen him. You are clearly disheveled. You've been up all night. I don't know what's going on with you. And then Aaron drops the bomb on her. Riley's dead. And she doesn't give any other context. She's just like, Riley's dead. He's gone. He is. I'm sorry. And Mrs. Flynn's reaction is like, I didn't think at all what you would expect. No. And yet... You know, this is a character who has always, we see at the very beginning, she almost to a fault refuses to believe the worst or the truth of what Riley has done. She's just sort of compartmentalized that and put it away and is just like, Riley's home. Yay. Mm -hmm. We're a family again. Yay. Everything is fine. And I think when confronted with the ugly truth or the potential ugly truth, she just can't. She can't handle it. And that's where all of the rest of the feelings get let out. So she gets really angry with Aaron. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think she just can't accept the horrible truth, you know, um, out of self-preservation, it seems. Yeah, I get the impression that Mr. and Mrs. Flynn thought that when Riley came home, that would be it. Like, okay, he goes to AA meetings, but everything's going to be fixed. And so... Ed can't understand why through Father Paul's tutelage, who's done so much good for so many other people, at least seemingly so, and then Riley's there, and somehow he's not doing good for him. It seems like things are going off the rails. I think it's a really good example of a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be in recovery. Yeah. You know, that uh, recovery is not like you go to rehab or you start AA and you're cured. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. And as part of that journey, sometimes you stumble, sometimes you relapse, sometimes you have to be brought back in. And in those moments, like support from those that care about you is like more vital than ever. But I think that that is a very hard thing for people who don't have addiction or Mm -hmm. have never experienced addiction with loved ones to fully understand that it's not a choice number one to be like oh well 
I've been doing great, but I guess I'm going to, you know, wreck my whole thing. Like, it's a disease. And I know you and I have talked about this with some other folks in our lives that, like, just can't bring themselves to that understanding that, Mm -hmm. like, it is an ongoing thing. And I think the Flynn's are very much of that mindset. And it's kind of through no fault of their own because I don't think – I think we're just starting to have those conversations writ large about the sort of journey of recovery, Mm -hmm. that it's not like you're not healed – You're not, you know, people say, I'm in recovery, or I am a recovering alcoholic or drug addict. And that title of recovering tends to be a lifelong identity, rather than just like, I'm healed, I'm good, you know. Yeah, it's certainly not a straight line. No, it's not. Like, you don't just like get on and then at the end, you get off and you're like, okay, cured, like, all done. Yeah, It's definitely not like that. And I mean, on an island with 127 people, like... That's hard. That's a hard lesson to have to learn because the only other person, at least that we know of, that is an addict or is at all like Riley is Joe Cawley. And like he is, is, at least until the very last days of his life, was sort of an unrepentant alcoholic. Right. Like he did something terrible and then still couldn't bring himself to you know, recovery. So everybody's just like, well, if you're doing good, then you're always going to be doing good. Right. But if you're doing like, you know, if you're going the Joe Colley route, then you're just going to be like that forever. Exactly. What did you think of Sheriff Hassan's story that he tells Dr. Sarah when she comes to him? Because she, like, Sheriff Hassan has been bombarded for, (laughs) for a small town sheriff. He's been like, bombarded with random weird stuff the past couple of days. Joe Colley's missing, Bull is missing, and the Dr. Sarah comes and she's like, go investigate the church because people's blood is on fire. And he's like, okay, listen. Yeah. <laughs> Let yeah. me break this down for you. So what did you think of the story that he told? Uh, I thought it was beautiful. I think it's a story we don't hear enough, you know. The really complicated situation for Muslim Americans post 9-11, not to mention just people who look like they're from the Middle East, who may not even be, you know, from the Middle East. People who are, you know, as Sheriff Hassan says, like, he's an American. He happens to be Muslim. And he talks about his profound sorrow at 9-11, how he wanted to be a force for change, and, you know, how much he loves the country, and just how he was met with roadblocks and paranoia and really what I would call white supremacy, uh, his entire journey in law enforcement and how taxing that was. I think that's the thing we don't hear enough in media. Like we kind of all know it happens, but we don't talk about it enough. And we don't talk about the sort of personal, emotional, spiritual, embodied toll that it has on people of color, people from, you know, traditionally marginalized communities in the U.S., like to endure that, you know, Mm -hmm. to try to be the air quotes good one and to endure all of the, you know, the discrimination and the racism and the implicit and explicit aggressions. Mm I thought it was a really beautiful speech. And I think it's like a good reminder for all of us that, you know, just because you see somebody doing this seemingly noble act, you know, or like being setting the example for their community or their identity, like that's a lot to carry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Sheriff Hassan basically saying I was trying to be the example so that people would no longer be afraid of me. That's not a responsibility that he 
should have had to take on. Yeah. It seemed as though he did not shy away from it. He was part of the NYPD. He moved to New York. He and his community donated blood after 9-11. He was in college at that time. So obviously, like, very formative years for him. But then it didn't matter, like, how much of an example he was. He was still met with all of these red boxes. And and he had been doing all of this because he's a good Muslim. Like, he wanted to stay true to the tenets of his faith. And then his wife, also very devout, was taken from him in a very brutal way, not treated with kindness, not treated with dignity. That was the big thing that he was talking about. And then he moves literally as far away as you can get from New York, which is an island off of the Pacific Northwest. And even then, he's like, this town is super sleepy. I'm not going to have to worry. And so I am not going to be, I'm not going to pry. I will not overstep my bounds. I will simply be there to catch somebody when they fall. And that still isn't enough. Yeah. He was hyper vigilant before, super like trying to set an example, and that didn't work. So he goes fully into the other spectrum, like the other end of the spectrum, which is I will bring me and my son to this island out in the middle of nowhere. I will be passive. I will not speak out. And it still didn't work. And the interesting thing about that, the it still didn't work has nothing to do with what he does. Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with other people's judgments and problems and ingrained racism and, you know, Islamophobia and all of that. Because he specifically says, like, you know, here's how I shaped my entire career upon coming to this island with, you know, good intent and to be community minded and all of this, you know, and there were a handful of people and he specifically names Bev Keen, Mm -hmm. you know, and we know throughout the course of this show with any of her interactions with the sheriff, it's her problem. It's not his problem, but it becomes his problem. Yeah. Her problem with him becomes his problem. Yeah. And he would even take small victories, like tiny victories. He was like, I want to win over the PTA. Like, yep. that that would be my, like, the thing that I would be proud of is winning over the PTA and having them understand that teaching the Bible in school and, like, reading it or exposing the children to that during school hours is probably not appropriate. Yep. Or letting them know, like, your God and my God are the same God. Yep. Um, which he did talk about, I think that was episode two. Yeah. He did tell them, like, we worship the same God. I believe Jesus was a prophet as well. But I don't think he was the last one. That's like the only difference yeah. between our fundamental religions. And then well, also we have the last holy text, which we think is the one that came after Jesus from Muhammad. He's like, that's all I wanted. And then I couldn't even do that. Yeah. So I think, too, in activist circles, we we talk a lot about, you know, the kind of hackneyed phrase, like, think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. And we don't often acknowledge that, like, even acting locally, like we make acting locally seem so much easier. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you can affect small changes in your community. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. You know, in the news business, we talk about how local politics is often the more, the most contentious politics. Everyone wants to focus on like the presidential election, but you see like the most contentious, like weird, infighty stuff in local politics because within our own communities, we're so ingrained. So making the change or being the change in a local community, it sounds all nice and easy and well and good, but it's very hard. And I think we see that in the sheriff. Yeah, we talked about last episode getting swallowed in a big city. 
And now we see with Sheriff Hassan that you can get swallowed in a small place too. In yeah. a in a tiny place. Yeah. This is a tiny place. He even mentions that they haven't had a purposeful act of aggression in almost a century. Yeah. And yet still everything he tries to do gets swallowed by the bigger fish in yeah. the pond. His story is heartbreaking in general. He's definitely like one of the sadder character arcs in the show yeah. to see him lose everything and then to see a very heartbreaking loss later in this episode. I'm just going to use that as a way to transition, um, pivot to Ali. We get the impression we have these kind of bad actors that are going around the island making it impossible for folks to leave. Um, Dr. Sarah and Mildred and Aaron try to leave. They can't. There's no boats. Sturge has disabled all of the boats that would take them to the mainland. There's no ferry. They cut the power, and then we have this procession to the church. Everybody comes to the church. They're singing this song. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but It's Holy Lord, My God, to Thee. Yeah, which... Creepy harmonies. <laughs> yes. It's it's chilling to see them all walking in the dark towards the church, because it yeah. mid, it's midnight mass time, uh, the namesake so of our show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's very creepy. They're all holding candles or singing a hymn all the way there, and then once they get installed there... Actually, I'll pause on Ollie. We can bring that back up. But we have Father Paul, a little less militant. Yeah. This go round. Yeah. He's wearing his gold shazable. Yep. Yep. He's back in gold. He's back in gold. And he actually acknowledges that. Yes. He's like, hey, uh, yeah, I know I wasn't supposed to be wearing gold that first day, but it was a holy day. It was the day of the, what does he say, the new covenant? Yeah, which is really creepy. Yeah. Because covenant is a big word when we're talking about the Bible. Uh, yeah. It's like the most, like... It's a sacred agreement. Yeah. It's like the most um, tethering yeah. agreement that you could possibly have. Yeah. Um, because what we're talking about, like the covenant that God had with Jesus and that, yep. that God has with the people, that is the covenant. Literally, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And he says, this is the new covenant. And you're like... Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that does not bode well for anyone. <laughs> no. And it's a packed church. Yep. Candles everywhere. It's very, like, pretty looking. Yeah. You know? But we have Father Paul saying uh, he gives a confession to the constituents of his church. And he says, it's been too long since my confession. And I'll confess to you, I've lied. Father Pruitt is not convalescing. He's standing here asking you for your forgiveness. And everybody's like, Ed Flynn, like, puts his head back as far as he could possibly get it, <laughs> like, in judgment. I do not understand. Yeah. So he reveals to them, you know, um, I am Father Pruitt. We're one and the same. Hello. <laughs> Been here for a while, but um, I was on the road to Damascus and an angel came to me and I was restored and healed and my death was very brief and we're going to do miracles today. So interesting pivot for him to go from episode five where he's like very militant language yeah to like okay now you all get to experience this miracle too what did you think about that scene i wonder if he was questioning at that point what he was about to do because we see him he's very subdued this whole episode like when he's talking to bev and the mayor and dolly and sturge he seems very chill it's Bev kind of driving everything. Mm -hmm. um, he's very chill in the service. Yeah, I just wonder if he's having like a moment of doubt or at the very least sensing the gravity of what they are truly about 
to do and yeah. like what they are about to compel people to do. Like it's a huge thing, of course, as we see. And I just wonder if he's having that moment of like, is this truly what God or the angel is asking for me? Because it's really Bev that's driving the whole agenda forward at this point mm-hmm. and making sure that everything happens. And it seems like making sure that there isn't time to back out. Right. I think he's also shook after Riley dies. I, yeah, I think I, you're right. I don't think that he had factored that into his plan. I don't think he would have invested so much time if he thought that Riley was going to do what he did. And, you know, we have that scene where he says he senses that Riley is gone and he's kind of absorbing it and thinking about it. And and it is Bev that's just like, well, he wasn't worthy of the gift. And you're going to have doubters and blah, 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 blah. And we just, this is what God wants. And she just starts throwing scripture at him. And he's not really responding. He's just kind of absorbing. So I think you're right that that has a lot to do with it. That scene particularly, I don't know if you felt like this, but I feel like when Bev and Father Paul were talking and she's kind of throwing scripture at him. I always think this, but I was like, man, Bev is so tiresome, but I feel like you could feel that through Father Paul too. Oh, yeah. That he's like, I am so sick of you spouting all these platitudes. Like, just let me think on my own. I think Riley's letter to him too also kind of like triggered something. yeah, Yeah, like thinking that, okay, well, I have this plan. I'm gonna invest this time in my disciple, my first disciple. Riley, who, if Riley is his first disciple after he's figured out through Joe Colley, like, how to do this, if Riley is his first disciple, he is the most fallen of all the folks on the island, so he would have the farthest to go. And if Father Paul can make him into this miracle, then he could do it to anybody. And I think it's obvious that he was going to tout them, like, Riley around, like, look at who I've saved, the least worthy of the miracle, now I showed you who are more worthy of this, wouldn't you take it? And to have Riley stand with him in this and say, I was suffering from addiction. I was incarcerated and I found my redemption and I've been given this gift. Don't you want this too? And Mm -hmm. he doesn't have that. He's got Bev. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Good old Bev. (sighs) We get to this point where Father Paul asks sturge up onto the stage or not up onto the stage but like to kneel before the the altar the altar and we see bev bring out more poison which i love that that harkened back to what happened to joe collie's dog yeah because i'm thinking the whole time like would any of this have happened if joe collie's dog had not been poisoned oh that's interesting or if bev's you know mo was not always poisoned but In any case, she brings it out, Sturge drinks the poison, and then he dies. He convulses. He's, like, vomiting. It's rough. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to watch the dog die either, but, like, this is is worse. This is objectively worse. But Father Paul the entire time is like, don't fear. I know this dude's vomiting, blood, and convulsing, but do not fear. Everybody's, like, aghast at this. Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever seen somebody else die so violently on the island doesn't no, really seem like they're seem like a TV people. No. So they watch this happen to Sturge, who is a beloved member of the community. Yeah. They watch this happen. And then Father Paul's like, just give it a few minutes. The miracle will kick in. Sheriff Hassan is like, oh, hell no. Yeah. Like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm bringing my son with me. Yeah. 
And so they try to go out the entrance, and who is standing to block the doors? Our boy! (laughs) The scary angel. Yeah. The scary vampire angel. Yeah. I say our boy in a general sense, because we still do not know the gender of this being. Yeah. I don't know. Angels don't have gender, right? They're agender? Oh, well, that's a, that's so, okay, that's a controversial thing, you know? Really? Well, this is one of those, some people, you know, certain groups want to ascribe gender to God or to angels mm-hmm. for their patriarchal oh, yeah. bullshit purposes. And really, if you look at the Bible, angels are like canonically non-binary or right. agender or gender fluid. But people will try to tell you that like, oh, yeah, like the angel, the you know, well, yeah, the angels are like, you know, Michael is an archangel. So Michael is a dude when it's like Michael is an angelic being yeah. that supersedes the gender binary. Sorry, y'all. Yeah, it's almost like an alien, like it's something that is other, like yes, yeah, not Angels othered in are, a not othered in a bad way, but yeah. like well, not of us. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing about angels, like biblical angels, is um, and again, some of this comes from like a lot of the misconceptions we have about like Bible stories come from like Middle Age and Renaissance era artwork. You yeah. know, white Jesus with blonde hair, etc. <laughs> yeah. But um, all of these paintings of angels, and there have been a lot of memes about this recently that just crack me up every time I see them. <laughs> you know, there are all these like depictions of angels and they make them look, you know, kind of like white Jesus, like these beautiful men that look kind of like Lestat <laughs> with like long flowing hair. Uh, when really the biblical description of a lot of angels is like freaky, like eyeball winged spheres. Like, yeah. With, a thousand eyes and things like that like something you'd see if you're on mushrooms yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> or like uh tripping on like mescaline or something yeah like- yeah there have been some great memes recently plunking in to like classic paintings these like freaky like <laughs> accurate like biblically accurate uh drawings of angels and they kill me every time they're great so we're not talking you and mcgregor jesus we're talking no. like <laughs> like obi-wan, Obi-Wan jesus. jesus yes <laughs> obi-wan jesus christ but yes and i thought it was interesting so we see father paul acknowledge his own gold chasuble and then the angel is wearing a white one, which I think is very poignant because I read, and maybe you can um, add a little bit to this, but I read that white chasubles are often worn during funerals. Yes. So I thought that was like kind of, I don't know if it's on purpose because like how many chasubles does Father Paul own? Right, right. <laughs> and how many does he want to cut up to allow for this angel's wing? Yeah, it had wing holes. <laughs> but yeah, like I thought it was interesting that on this night, the night of the Midnight Mass, the night of, night of the Easter Vigil, Father Paul chose his own gold and then chose the angel to have white. And the angel doesn't actually do anything at first. He yeah. just kind of lets this stuff go down. Yeah, the angel's just like, look, I'm here to show my support to the organization. My big old long fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Hanging yeah. out, standing here like a giant seven-foot bodyguard. And Sheriff Hassan tries to shoot them and... Father Paul's like, no, 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 don't do anything rash. And then he does it anyway. So he like fires the gun into the rafters and then the parishioners, you know, tackle him and get the gun away from him. So then he has to watch as Ollie, because Sturge wakes up. Yeah. And he's apparently okay. He has survived this poisoning. Yep. And Ollie chooses 
to follow in Sturge's footsteps. And he says, looking his dad straight in the face, I choose God. And I thought, I was like, this is heartbreaking. It, yeah, it really was. It's hard to watch Sheriff Hassan lose somebody else. Yeah. To something that is not in his control. Yep. I don't think he pushed Ali into Christianity necessarily. Although, like so many people who are, you know, raised in a certain religion, he's not really given a choice to right. explore other things. But it's more because his dad is very protective of him and wants him to learn traditions that his mother would have wanted as well. Yeah. And kind of like, he's holding on to him in a death grip, like, please, I don't want to lose the last thing that I have. Because it really seems like if he didn't have Ali, he'd probably just be off the rails at this point. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And he kind of acknowledges that when he's talking to Dr. Sarah earlier in the episode. You know, he talks about not wanting Ali to experience the same things that he has as a Muslim man in America. And also he completely acknowledges that he also kind of made this choice to come to the island for himself and that Ollie is very bored and is feeling very isolated. So I think he recognizes the complex nature of the sort of situation that he's put his son in, but it's no less heartbreaking. Like his knowledge of it and acknowledgement of it makes it almost more heartbreaking because he knows it's a problem, you know, that he's brought his son to this place where there aren't a lot of young people to begin with and his son is othered among those young people because he doesn't participate in the church. You know, he is the only Muslim student, uh, one of a few people of color, as we've discussed uh, before on the island. And uh, that's a, that's hard, you know, and Mm -hmm. he, his decision has created this situation for his son. Yeah. And Sheriff Hassan has, is forced to watch his son die like right in front of him. The other thing is, like, in Islam, there are angels as well. Like, the angel Gabriel comes to Muhammad and delivers the message. So uh, Sheriff Hassan is, like, really familiar with stories in in regards to messages being delivered by angels. But he himself sees this, you know, quote-unquote angel and is, like, terrified. Yeah. And Father Paul's like, oh, be not afraid. Everybody's supposed to be scared of angels, but don't be scared because it's fine. And Sheriff Hassan is like, Oh, hell no. We yeah, just this is not fine. People are getting poisoned. At first, when Sturge does it, everybody's scared. But then when Ali does it, it, like, gives the rest of the folks their courage to do yeah. it. Which they're like, well, I'm not going to be one-upped by Ali. By the Muslim kid. Yeah. yeah. By the, the brown kid. Like, he's yeah. not going to go first. He's not going to be the only person to experience the miracle. But Bev is like, yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's do this. Like, yeah. Thank you for being the example. Like, oh, well, if this Muslim kid can come up here and have the miracle, then all of you folks who are more devout in terms of Catholicism, you could come up and have this miracle, too. And they're like, yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, although she didn't plan this in any way, shape or form, this was like Bev's crowning achievement. Like, look, I got a convert here. You know, like that to her has to be. Just a moment of great triumph. Father Paul couldn't do it. Nope. He tried to get Riley. Riley, who was a altar boy, who was Catholic, he couldn't do it. But I can do it with Ali. Yeah. Ugh, icky. So gross. It's, ugh, it's nasty. So Ali does it, and then everybody's doing it. The mayor is doing it. His dolly does it. Like, 
a whole bunch of other folks from the island that we don't we're not really familiar with do it. Warren's friend, the other the altar other, boy, yeah. he does it. But we have very specifically the folks not doing it. Mildred, Dr. Sarah, Aaron, Warren, Bev does not do it. Right. And Lisa. Lisa, Lisa who's terrified like yeah, a, as a teenager would be. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Flynn. Yeah. So I want to talk about the parallels between the mayor and Dolly and Mr. and Mrs. Flynn. Yeah. Because they're both not exactly the same trajectory, but they both have a young teenager. They both have some colossal thing that they've had to contend with. The mayor and Dolly with Lisa's disability and the Flynn's with Riley's, you know, crime and punishment, (laughs) so to speak. But they take two very different trajectories. We have the Flynn's horrified, not participating in what's happening. But then you have the mayor and Dolly fully ingrained in what's happening. Yeah. They are the ones who helped plan this entire thing. And they're some of the first to change. So what did you think about this, like, parallel parallel lives with two very different choices? Well, I thought it was interesting that Dolly very specifically seemed less on board than her husband the entire time. And yet she is one of the first to partake of the poison. She, when we see the kind of meeting of the players that are going to put everything in action earlier, she's crying, Mm -hmm. you know? Presumably because she has just been told, okay, everybody's going to die and be reborn. We're feeding everybody poison this evening at mass. And yet she's one of the very first. Mm -hmm. That to me is fascinating because we see Lisa at mass more than we even see her parents. Mm -hmm. Like her parents are obviously devout. Dolly does some of the singing and the reading at church. But we almost see Mrs. Flynn as being more devout or more reliant on her faith at the beginning of the series. Mm -hmm. And yet the Flynn's are very much able to just opt out of the whole thing. And uh, Dolly and the mayor are just so ingrained in this in a, in a very curious way. It's interesting to me to see a very real world portrayal of the mayor specifically, a real world portrayal of the mayor descending into doing something very evil while thinking he's still doing something really good. Yeah. You don't see that often most of the time. And it's just normally by way of like time constraints, but like you typically don't see a character descend into doing bad things and thinking that they're doing good things. You normally see like a switch get flipped in them. Yeah, like they make a pivotal decision and it's a very dramatic moment or whatever. And for him, it's not dramatic at all. It's just like just little bits at a time. And then by the end of this episode, he's pulling the fuses out of the power and telling Sturge like, oh, just wait on the cell towers. Just do that later to isolate the entire island. So I appreciate the kind of subtle, gentle descent into doing something really evil for the mayor. I think it's an important portrayal like... Often in the real world, there's no time when you're like, okay, I've made this decision and there's no going back. Yeah. It's just tiny decisions that over time accumulate into you doing something really bad. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so last thing I want to talk about, because we still have to watch the last episode. We do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The last thing I want to talk about is Bev hiding from this miracle. Oh, it's fascinating. So, yeah. 
everybody, we're getting to this point where it's just like a free for all. Everybody is consuming the poison. People are dying left and right. And during this point, Mildred shoots Father Paul in the head. Yeah. Bravo to Mildred. Yeah. There's this sort of chaotic scene. People are like running and all this stuff happening. Mildred shoots Father Paul in the head and he is kind of incapacitated for a while because while he is immortal, it takes him a little bit of time to like regenerate. Yeah. He is sort of laid out. He can't speak. And when this happens, the angel carries Mildred out of the church And then Bev is like, okay, lock the doors. Everybody's in here. We're doing this thing. But when they start waking up, the people who have drank the poison, when they start waking up, they're hungry. Yeah. They want blood. And now, basically, Bev has just condemned everybody who's still in the church who has not already drank the poison into being food for these first few people that are waking up. But she has not consumed the poison. She does not stay, though. She also runs. There's, like, some struggle, and a few of our key characters are able to escape, too. But Bev also has hidden from what's happening from the carnage. So what did you think about Bev chickening out and being in the back of the church with the rest of them? I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it was fear or if it was the type of thing where she wanted to be the last one to Mm -hmm. arise in glory like let everybody else participate in a bloody frenzy and confusion and fear and death and rebirth and all of this and then at the very end of it all let bev be the one in her white gown to arise as the sort of leader or co-leader of this thing I go back and forth as to whether it was fear or whether it was more about Bev finally getting her due. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we've seen throughout the latter half of this series, her jealousy Mm -hmm. that everybody else is getting this opportunity and she's kind of not. Yeah. It was really satisfying to see Aaron shoot her. Oh, yeah. Which I don't often say, but Bev is one of the the few characters where really it was coming to her. But also, Bev has been consistently snubbed like over and over and over again. And an interesting word that I want to take out of my pocket and use, because I hardly ever get to use this word, is beatific. Um, Ooh, okay. So when the angel walks out, Bev looks scared. Uh-huh. But then when Sturge is resurrected, her face is literally beatific. Like, yeah. she is filled with religious fervor at that point, like joy in what she's seeing. But she shies away from... Like, when she sees everybody waking up, she knows what's going to happen. She knows that they need blood. She's seen what happened to Riley. She saw what happened to Father Paul. But yet, she's still afraid, and she runs away. And I also wanted to mention, she was not bestowed the miracle by the angel. She was not bestowed the miracle by Father Paul. She was not the first, either. Sturge was the first. And not only that, she wasn't even used to give blood. Right. When Riley was hungry, she was not used for blood for Father Paul. She was never used for blood. So it's like... She's been jealous this entire time. Everything's been bad. And now she doesn't even get, like, to be bestowed this miracle with everybody else. I wonder if it's a sort of screwed up understanding of there's a very famous line from the Bible, and the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. Hmm. Yeah. And she didn't even get that. Yeah. 
Yeah. She because <laughs> she she's trying to tell Aaron like, oh, don't shoot me. It's not even going to matter. I'm only going to be five minutes behind. And Aaron's like, nah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still going to do it. <laughs> and then she's like, now we've got five minutes. So, yeah. and then we end the episode with Bev waking up. And she's in the church, and there's a bunch of dead bodies. They've been drained of their blood because all of the hungry vampires that have been locked inside the church. And basically, she's like, drain them all, let God sort them out. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, terrifying. And she tells them to take Sheriff Hassan out back because, well, that was prior, but she tells them to take him out back because they're going to need food. And it's like... Yeah. And then she says, throw open the doors. How else does the, the miracle spread? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Chilling. <laughs> but the flip side of that is, okay, throw open the doors. How else does the miracle spread? Uh, They're still on an island where there are no boats, no power. How are they intending to spread this miracle? Yeah. And now how many people do they have that aren't? unalived yeah. Yeah. you know it like it's like a flawed plan yeah in my like, opinion. they have like six or seven people who yeah. aren't like you have dr sarah aaron warren <laughs> sheriff son yeah that's lisa. lisa that doesn't seem like enough food for yeah even if you lowball it 40 people 50 people that's not enough food no definitely not all right now we gotta roll into yeah. episode seven woohoo Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.